This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have Dr. Gaurav Dial, President and COO of Everside Health. This is a direct primary care company that's really leading the way in this race to value. Yeah, Eric, I think our listeners are going to really enjoy this episode. You know, this is the first time we talk about direct primary care and how it relates to the value movement. And Dr. Dial is definitely an expert in this, a fantastic guest, and I, I think our listeners will have a lot to gain. Dr. Gorov Dial, welcome to the Race to Value. It's so exciting to have you here today. Thanks, Eric. It's a pleasure. Well, before we get started, I just had to ask you, man, how was Iceland? I mean, we, we talked a few weeks ago. I know you were heading out that way. How was that trip? It's on my bucket list. Uh, it was amazing for one reason, as I got to see the active volcano. I can't pronounce the name because it's in Icelandic, and it's, I can't pronounce anything as in Icelandic, but it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. We were very close I would say a few hundred yards and there was lava coming out every seven minutes. So I got to see it probably 10 times. So very unique experience that I'm super thrilled that I got to experience. And the rest of it was great too. Oh man, that's amazing. Well, it is on my list. I'm going to make it there someday. So let's talk about this value-based care movement. Hopefully you're not in vacation mode anymore because <laughs> we're going to get down into this movement that we're in. And as an industry veteran and executive with leadership experience in population health, I'd love to start our discussion today and just talk about the current state of value-based care in our country. And health policy is obviously a driving force. And despite value-based care generally being a bipartisan issue, the movement still continues to encounter speed bumps. And politically, it seemed we were on this course towards the progression of downside risk payment until we started seeing some of these delays and pullbacks in, the, in some of these APMs. You know, for example, the serious ill population component of the primary care first model is under review and it's not beginning on April 1st like we thought it would. And the geo direct contracting model that was expected to start next year is now under review. And 
We have the new Kidney Care Choices APM that's been pushed back to 2022. And then most recently, the CMS Innovation Center or CMMI shocked industry leaders just a few months ago by announcing a postponement of the second application cycle for the global and professional direct contracting model. So all of these signals are in juxtaposition to the actual results of the CMMI APM portfolio that shows that despite serving over 26 million patients, they're not really producing necessary financial and quality impacts to justify expanding most of the pilots. And of this 54 total models in the CMMI portfolio, I think only five have ever produced uh, statistically significant savings. And CMMI director uh, Liz Fowler spoke at NACOS recently, and she said, we can't have fee-for-service remain a comfortable place to stay, and all parts of the system need to be brought into the value-based world. And Gaurav, I was just thinking, what do we make sense out of this landscape right now in the health policy arena? Is policy really heading in the right direction and moving fast enough for us in this race to value? First of all, I fully agree with your overarching sentiment that this is disappointing. Typically, and as you mentioned, most people would view value-based care, the progression to value-based care, be a fairly bipartisan issue. In fact, Medicare Advantage could be an example of that, where I think it was actually launched under Republican administration, but actually grew a lot under Democrats and continued to grow under the last administration. A lot of the CMI founding post-ACA, again, under Democrats, but then maybe potentially accelerated under Republicans as well. I think that one thing that we're seeing right now is COVID has become practically the only topic of conversation in most healthcare spaces. And I don't know if there's a connection between many of the unfortunate delays that you're referencing to and the fact that at the moment, most of the focus is on COVID and COVID only. So I don't know if that's the case, but there probably is a connection given that this is a once in a hundred year, hopefully once in a hundred year kind of issue and that the federal government's focus is around how do we put all our resource towards this. I think at the same time on the delivery side, especially for hospitals and your typical fee-for-service providers, they went through a death spiral around this time last year and are probably slowly recovering. I don't think that talking about value-based care is high on their agenda at the moment. Um, I think they went from, are we surviving this, to government obviously pumped a lot of money into the system, and now it's back to how do I get back to baseline? So my take is that, unfortunately, while COVID highlighted so many structural problems, both from a public policy as well as a healthcare delivery perspective, the deficiencies we have in our healthcare system I think it may ultimately also cause us to retrench a bit in on the value-based care agenda. Um, my hope is that this is a short-term phenomena, um, and this time, by this time next year, a lot of these things are back on track. But I fully agree with you that this is not ideal. Gaurav, as we're discussing health policy, I want to ask you about your recent experience interviewing for the director of Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. In 2019, you were selected as a finalist to lead CMMI and replace Adam Bowler. And the White House and HHS Secretary Alex Azar, though, ultimately tapped Brad Smith to be his successor. And when that selection was made in 2020, in January of 2020, I couldn't help but notice some similarities. And I'm going to read between the lines between Brad Smith and Adam Bowler. And they both have entrepreneurial backgrounds. They both built multi-million dollar startups. It seems like there's a clear direction that the Trump administration wanted CMMI 
to be led by those with ties to the private equity world instead of somebody like yourself, who's a nationally recognized physician leader with extensive experience in healthcare transformation as an executive. In retrospect, I'm sure you're probably relieved you didn't get the role as Brad Smith was there for about a year. It was a tumultuous time within an administration that was kind of in chaos and spiraling out of control. You know, at the same time as the country's facing the pandemic crisis that you've talked about and kind of seeing this halt of momentum in value-based care. Can you share with our listeners what the interview process was like and what you ultimately learned from that experience? I think that's a good summary of my sentiments, Daniel. So thanks for um, highlighting that. First of all, I would say that it's an honor to be asked to be in a position like that. It's very hypothetical until you're in the interview process. And then you realize the enormity of the responsibility and the enormity of the impact that one can have. So I would be lying if I said I wasn't disappointed by the outcome. But as you can imagine, these are extremely political issues with a lot of stakeholders. And frankly, you know, I'm a physician leader. I'm not a political person. I probably got way more exposure to the political process than I ever thought I would during this process. And I learned a lot. What I learned was that the right leadership can have tremendous impact on how healthcare is delivered across this country. And we've seen that when we've had those type of leaders in place. I realized that these are tremendously there's a lot of responsibility placed in these leaders, which they should not take lightly. And I learned, unfortunately, in my case, that it's not all about just your experience, your merit. In fact, those things may not be in the top three considerations. It's really a lot more about the political connectivity and different stakeholders and different agendas. What I learned through the process, um, a few things. There is a lot of passion at the federal level to push ideas that can improve care for the U.S. population. And I think there's a lot of passionate people out there. You know, I think we tend to, for those of us who are not in the government, we tend to look at the government as this bureaucracy that moves very slowly and people don't know what they're doing. I was actually pleasantly surprised at how quickly things moved and, and how passionate people were about changing the system for the better within the confines of obviously a very large and bureaucratic process. So that was a huge positive for me. I also learned about obviously specific areas that the government uh, is focused on. Medicare Advantage would be one of them. Medicaid would be one of them, both being sort of areas that I'm familiar with, but also around the different stakeholders that influence decision-making. You know, it's not as simple as saying, well, you know, we should have a single rate structure for hospital procedures. There's a lot of stakeholders in there. There's the AHA, the AMA, the physicians have their own take, the device makers have their own take, and, and the political folks have to balance everyone's needs with their own. So I think that was a good learning for, for me as well. I think it also, in my mind, reinforced one thing, which maybe is a bit of a negative, that there should be more clinical folks who understand the clinical and public health folks who understand the healthcare milieu as providers, as leaders, rather than folks who don't, which goes back to your earlier point around the leadership that's been selected for some of these roles. Not all those folks have that. I think as clinicians, as public health leaders, we have a different take. And I think that became extremely evident in, for lack of a better word, a lack of response during COVID over the past a year ago. My hope is that there's a greater realization for the need of expertise across the spectrum in healthcare delivery. And frankly, for any role in government, 
and that we bring in the best and the brightest and they have the opportunity to participate and, and contribute and not get dissuaded by what becomes very frankly political processes. I hope that uh, I have the opportunity to serve um, in the future. And if I do, I hope I can make a big contribution. Well, Gaurav, as we, we think about how to make the system better, we have a lot of questions from those that are in our learning collaborative. And then we've talked about this on our podcast, and that's this concept of the tipping point for value. And for a healthcare organization, there's always this idea that there, there needs to be a certain level of risk in your revenue portfolio to be able to demonstrate a strong enough cultural commitment to move to value-based care. Brent James even wrote about this in the Harvard Business Review a few years ago, where he said the tipping point is around 30% in his mind, where you have the group's total payments that come through capitation and mathematical and empirical models show that operational efforts really focused on waste elimination will actually lead to improved financial performance. And many would disagree with that. I mean, they'd say you need to have a large majority, upwards of 70% of your business at risk in order to have an economically viable model for value-based care. And before joining Everside, you were the president of New Markets and the chief growth officer for ChinMed. And that's an organization that has 100% of its primary care business at risk and a fully capitated model. So I'm really interested in hearing your perspective on how a predominantly fee-for-service based organization can make this transition to value-based care by changing their culture and getting away from a fee-for-service mindset to a, a value-based care mindset. And based on what you said earlier in your comments on health policy, I know a lot of organizations are trying to read the tea leaves here. And what yeah. should they be thinking? You know, how should they plan to move out of fee-for-service and what investments should they be making? And just given the amount of time needed to make that transformation, how should they be planning for the inevitable? I think in this country, value-based care has, for some reason, become synonymous with capitated risk. One could argue that single-payer systems in Europe, for example, may or may not be pushing value-based care, but they operate under global budgets. So I think the concept is more around paying for outcomes, not necessarily in a capitated model. You could have payment for outcomes even in fee-for-service, which may be a better way to push value-based care. I think what we're seeing here is, and I think your number, by the way, uh, Brett James is like, I idolize the guy. So thanks for bringing him up in the conversation. I, I think 30%, I don't know if 30% is the right number or not, but I do know 10 years ago, we were saying that and we're still not there. The question becomes is, is capitation the same thing as VBC? We've had capitation before in the absence of value-based care. We are now having some level of value-based care and some of the models actually, Eric, that you were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, which are not necessarily capitated models. So it probably is more of the linkage of the payment with the delivery system, which creates value-based care, which in fee-for-service is completely disjointed, right? You have folks just doing whatever and charging whatever and getting paid whatever, not I'm not saying it's appropriate or inappropriate, but there's no connectivity to the outcome or to the cost. So I think models that are pushing towards alignment of cost and outcome and arguably service are truly what create value. For example, a fee-for-service bundle for orthopedics to me is value-based care. If it's, if it's improving quality, ideally lowering total cost of care and improving the customer experience, it doesn't have to be under a pure capitated model. 
To your question around my experience, I mean, prior to Everside, you were, which is on value-based care, but in a non-capitated value-based care model, I was at ChenMed, which is 100%, as you said, capitated in Medicare Advantage. But prior to that, I spent well over a decade on, uh, on the fee-for-service side, both running my own group as a hospitalist, but then also serving in senior leadership positions in healthcare systems, pre-ACA, or maybe a right around ACA, in which value-based care was just not even a word. It was, it was a concept. So I think I've seen all three. It would be oversimplistic to say one is better than the other. I think what's happening is that in this country, healthcare is, while it's a service, it's a capitalistic service. All of the businesses are pursuing financial models and delivery models that maximize their success, both um, from an outcomes as well as from a profitability perspective. So your question around what large healthcare systems should do is challenging because it's very difficult for them to do anything but fee-for-service because that is still the predominant payment methodology in this country. And until that is changed, I think we're fooling ourselves to think that there's going to be enlightenment because there's no need. In fact, it's a money-losing proposition for a lot of folks to be trying to manage value-based care services while they're full-fledged pursuing fee-for-service at the same time. They're completely different businesses. So if you look at the history of companies, there are very few companies that are able to successfully transform themselves from one business into another. I can't really think of any. The dominant players in one business rarely are the dominant players in another business. And I think that we start with an assumption here that providers can successfully be leaders in value-based care and fee-for-service at the same time. I think what we're going to see instead is actually a new era of providers coming in and disintermediating on the value-based care side. And I've mentioned some of them, you mentioned some of them, rather than the incumbents successfully bridging the gap. The incumbents can probably do great in fee-for-service. They may require some repositioning of their assets, maybe scoping down services, maybe having different service offerings. But I don't see a wholesale movement of large healthcare systems into becoming value-based care providers. I think what's going to happen is ongoing specialization of services, either through value-based care or through fee-for-service, which will continue to create parallel models, such as we're seeing in the Medicare Advantage side with companies like ChenMed or Oak Street Health. And we're seeing on the employer side with companies like Everside, or we're seeing in the telehealth side as well. So I think we're going to see a lot more innovation happening that's following the payment system rather than existing players successfully bridging the gap between a fee-for-service and value-based care. I'm dating myself, but a decade ago, we were talking about total cost of care models, ACOs, and how at the healthcare system I was back then, how we need to transition. And frankly, I still talk to those folks now in a different context, and they're still having the exact same conversation. The needle is barely moving. I don't think we're even anywhere close to that 30% number. And I do think, to your point, the number has to actually be closer to 70% to make it happen. What we're seeing in parallel is companies germinating that are based on value-based care, or at least outcomes-based care as a business model. We're seeing this in the renal space. We're seeing this in the Medicare Advantage space. I've actually talked to specialty groups that are launching around you know, oncology, cardiology, orthopedics that are looking at outcomes and total cost of care as their business model, not fee-for-service. And I think that's going to be 
probably the future direction of value-based care rather than transition. Look, one example I use is electric cars. If you think about it, cars, four wheels with an engine in the middle, you would think that Toyota and GM and Volkswagen, you know, larger car companies in the world should be the leaders in electric cars as well. They're not. They may become it over time, but it took disruptors to enter the space to look at the fact that you don't need a gas-powered engine to run a car and build one from scratch to say, this is how it's still going to be four wheels, but it's going to be an electric engine. And I really view that conflict between fee-for-service and value-based care to be very similar. You can't swap out an electric engine for a gas engine and get an electric car. Everything has to be different. Even things as minor as the headlights and the mirrors have to be different because they have to conform to different standards in an electric car. And I think that what's happening in this fee-for-service world is to try to swap out the engine and say, oh, now we have an electric car. It's not that simple. You have to build it from scratch. And it's very difficult for incumbents to do that. Gorva, I'd like to continue this conversation about disruptors in healthcare. I'm thinking about employers and how they transition to value-based care as well. And, and legendary investor Warren Buffett said that rising healthcare costs, not the tax system, is the number one problem that American businesses face. And his quote is this, if you go back to 1960 or thereabouts, corporate taxes were about 4% of GDP, and now they're about 2% of GDP. At that time, healthcare was 5% of GDP, and now it's about 17% of GDP. In Buffett's view, this says a lot of what's playing a bigger role in hindering business activity in the economy. And he's famously quoted as saying that medical costs are the tapeworm of American economic competitiveness. So Everside Health is tackling employer healthcare costs head-on by offering direct primary care services to employers. This DPC model redirects healthcare from fragmented care sites such as inpatient and outpatient settings, specialist offices, ER, urgent care clinics, into the optimized primary care setting. In the longer term, Everside works to deliver cost savings by diagnosing, treating efficiently, and managing the health of a covered population. And as I understand, Everside currently operates in 32 states with 350 health clinics located at or near the facilities of its employers, unions, or other benefit sponsor clients. And can you tell our listeners more about the work that Everside Health is doing to operate clinics for employer groups and how you're able to build trust with employers? Also, how are your physicians incentivized to provide improved health outcomes, patient engagement, and patient satisfaction? Daniel, so you're hitting on a topic that I'm extremely passionate about. So I love the quote, the Warren Buffett quote you mentioned about this being a tapeworm on the U.S. economy. It's 100% right. Let's put some numbers out there. And like, I apologize, they may not be precise, but I think they're directionally accurate. The average American family now is spending, give or take, $20,000 on healthcare a year. The average family income is not going up, but healthcare inflation is subdued a little bit, but it's still in the high single digits. What's happened in this country, and as, as Mr. Buffett mentioned, we've disintermediate cost from the consumer. I was having this conversation with the CEO of a company yesterday who's looking to potentially be a customer of ours. Even he doesn't know what his cost is. All he knows is every year, HR comes to him and says, hey, we're going to have to pay 9% more to whomever you know, our carrier is. And at the same time, we're going to have to cut benefits for our employees. So you're having this dual thing going where costs continue to rise, benefits typically because of high deductible health plans continue to drop, 
and care continues to get compromised because HDHPs have been shown that people don't utilize healthcare services, maybe a short-term benefit to an employer, but it's not a long-term benefit because basic services often get deferred. This is a problem we've created by the consumer not having any insight into the prices. And this is further compounded by the fact that there's exceptional resistance towards price transparency in this country by the folks who actually can fully control the prices, which would control disclosure of the prices, but they use blocking techniques to do this. There is no reason why we should struggle to understand how much a x-ray costs at fill-in-the-blank facility. There's no reason why we have to struggle to understand why doctors can't explain to their patients how much a procedure costs. It's not because they're being evasive. They themselves do not know. So I think what's happened is we've just created this milieu where it's nobody knows how much it costs, but they do know that they pay X hundred dollars a month in health insurance. And based on that, it's this somewhat buffet mentality that, oh, I've paid my price now. I should utilize whatever I can. And whereas studies have shown over and over that overutilization of healthcare services is as dangerous as underutilization. In fact, if you look at this country, a lot of our issues with healthcare outcomes or poor healthcare outcomes are also strongly correlated to the fact that there's poor coordination and often excessive utilization of healthcare services at the same time where folks are not getting basic primary care, as we've seen with things. And COVID, again, has been a great magnifier for this, that the basic infrastructure is broken at many levels. At the same time, many people are getting unnecessary procedures, unnecessary medications, unnecessary everythings, which is causing a lot more complications in their own health. As it relates to Everside, our goal is very simple. Everybody in this country needs better access to good primary care. Everybody should have a quarterback who understands their health picture so that when you are healthy, they can continue to keep you healthy. If you have a chronic disease like diabetes or obesity or depression, they can manage that and hopefully push you back to a healthier state by active management. And if you have a complication that requires a specialist, they are coordinating that. This seems like a very basic concept, but it's very rare nowadays in this country because of a complete disintermediation of any primary care which has become exceptionally transactional and in many ways, for many people, glorified urgent care. So what we're offering is one point of contact for employers so that their employees can come to us. And as you mentioned, it could be on their premises, it could be near their premises, and it's also at their convenience, which we're now supplementing by telehealth, so that there's ongoing access to their primary care. And I keep saying the word there because... Telehealth is a good example of this. Adding telehealth to an existing broken primary care model just creates one more problem because now you have further disintermediation. It's sort of having like electronic urgent care where, again, your primary care doc doesn't know what's going on with you. In our model, the telehealth is fully embedded into your primary care physician's office so that if you have a telehealth encounter, they know what happened. It's embedded in your EMR and there's ongoing coordination pre and post a telehealth visit. So what employers are expecting from us is at least three things. One is that we drive much higher engagement of primary care with their employees by giving them access through physical as well, well as digital locations. We're calling it digital. The second is by engaging employees, we are keeping them healthy. 
And a byproduct of that is that their total cost of care is reduced, which is good for the employer. And it's also good for the employee. Because going back to that $20,000 per family cost, who ultimately is paying for that? <laughs> you know, we as a country are paying for it. That's coming out of our paycheck. We don't realize it because it comes across as health insurance. But let's flip this conversation around and said, hey, what if we could cut healthcare costs in this country by 30%, by 50%? That would overnight mean that there would be $10,000 more in every family's pocket to spend on whatever they want to spend on college, education, vacation, whatever. So we're basically taking money from our employees across the country and creating this very dysfunctional system, which, you know, has what the 32nd or 33rd outcomes in a list of uh, developed countries in this world. And it's just not working for folks. So our hope is to push primary care access and coordination at the front and center and use that to improve outcomes and improve total cost of care for, for our customers who are our employers. We do not bill for any of our services, meaning there is no fee-for-service billing. It's basically a membership model where an employee has unlimited access to CR providers, often get generic drugs at our site, get lab testing done. There is zero cost to them out of pocket and is, there's no deductible, and typically there's no insurance involved either. So it's it's a carve out from their benefit design so that there's no insurance involved and no associated headaches with that. There is no fee-for-service. Physicians are compensated on a combination of their panels and the outcomes of those panels. So typically there's no per-click charge. There's, they're basically on a salaried model. We encourage our physicians to spend as much time as needed with patients. The average physician in this country, I think primary care physician has a panel size of 24, 2,500 patients. Last I checked, ours are running around 800 patients. So it's about a third of the size, which by definition means they have three times more time to spend with the patient. Our incentivization to them is all towards are the outcomes better and are the costs better, which are measured over years and not over months. There is no billing. There is no documentation of risk or procedures or whatever, because there's no reimbursement. It's not needed. And I think it's a great time saving for the physicians and frankly, a great uh, benefit to them because none of the doctors I know like doing this. Um, they do it because they have to. Um, obviously, you have to have medical documentation, but if you look at most EMRs, it's basically glorified billing tools that capture diagnosis codes or risk scores. And since we're not getting compensated for either, we don't really care about capturing either of those things. Well, Gaurav, I think it's outstanding work, what you're doing there at Everside to offer direct primary care services to employers and individuals, and the outcomes are great. I mean, we were reading that 79% of Everside Health patients feel healthier as a result of their engagement in your model. And I know, I know the NPS scores are really high as well. And it seems like we really need solutions like yours and the employer-sponsored health insurance marketplace right now. And we, we talked a bit earlier about the just some of the macro challenges. I mean, we've got 157 million Americans that are in this dysfunctional employer-based health insurance market. And it's costing employers $530 billion in in poor health and lost productivity on top of the 880 billion that they already spend in premium dollars. And then, you know, to your point earlier, you look at the employee and if you add up over the course of their lifetime, the forsaken wages 
that they've basically given over to the healthcare monstrosity that we have. I mean, it's upwards of a million dollars or more for most people. So it's just ridiculous. And I really would like to expound more on this idea of like, how do we get large scale transformation and employer healthcare costs? And it was tried just recently, you know, Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, JP Morgan Chase, I mean, three of the largest high profile, best run companies in our country. And they had $534 billion in revenue between them. They tried to tackle this complex problem and they failed. And I, I know they were really looking at improving satisfaction and re reducing total cost of care. And they had a $4 billion annualized commitment to really make that happen through their outlay of, of insurance costs. And despite that rare show of leadership from these corporate chieftains with a shot across the bow at an industry, you know, and I know insurers and health providers and PBMs were paying attention. It just seemed like nothing really happened there. And, and we're still kind of in this almost miserable status quo nationally. And I wanted to get your take on and what went wrong with Haven and what can we learn from that experiment? And then are you optimistic that new approaches like what we're seeing from your company, obviously, but then you have the retail disruptors like Amazon Care and Walmart Health. I know they're looking the, to move the needle now. And is there a, I know there's no silver bullet, but I mean, are we looking at kind of an amalgam of different solutions like reference-based pricing, narrow networks, centers of excellence, medical tourism, telehealth, direct primary care, all of the above? I mean, what, what exactly is the formula for success here? Look, I share in your disappointment around Haven, but it's not surprising. You need companies that are formulated based on expertise in that space, not as frankly as sort of science projects. And I think part of this may be that it was a cool idea, but if you really dig deep into the funding of that company, how many employees that, it was never, I think, scaled up to actually manage the daunting task of trying to fix one of the most broken parts of the U.S. economy, our, our healthcare delivery model. So I also think that it's possible that highly profitable companies like banks, et cetera, are not as cost sensitive towards the healthcare needs. So if we look at, for example, at Everside, our sweet spot are solid middle-class consumers and employers, union workers, factory workers, teachers, retail workers, because that $20,000 a year can be 50% of their total wages. So from the employer perspective, it's a huge burden versus, you know, in, in higher income industries, that 20,000 may end up becoming 10% of the total cost of that employee. So I think the burning platform may have been less so there had it been a bit more cost sensitive group of companies coming together or price sensitive a group of companies coming together. That being said, I am very optimistic about the future. My hope is that where we're going to see the push is from the employers themselves. Because at some point, I, and I use this maybe crude analogy that, you know, everybody complains about their cable bill. And I think that that's just a chronic complaint. People have, oh, it's cables too expensive. And but once you had options that were cheaper to get, and, but people weren't disconnecting cable until uh, new products came out like Netflix, which were much cheaper, much more user-friendly, and were perceived to have much more value. I think what's happening in the healthcare delivery system is a similar model where companies like ours were somewhat smaller and maybe off the radar, virtual solutions, same thing. Now, I think an employer has the opportunity to say, look, 
I am literally wasting dollars on healthcare that I could be paying my employees and I'm not getting good outcomes. So what we're seeing is large employers now getting more proactive around total cost of care management. It's not going to happen overnight. These things take a lot longer, but the fact that we have businesses such as ours out there that are growing customer bases and the fact that despite its failure, companies like Haven actually were formulated and you know the, the next version of them will be successful. I think it's creating a movement that will push employers into looking at alternative solutions to the status quo. In many ways, if you think about it, Medicare Advantage is a good parallel, which is a fairly non-existent thing 10 years ago, and now 40% of Americans are signing up for it. Why? Because 40% of Medicare eligibles are signing up for it. Why? Because they are creating value and the beneficiaries are seeing benefit. They're seeing a, a significant advantage of signing up for plans like that. And I think what's going to happen in the commercial space, which is larger than the Medicare space, um, is the same thing is going to happen. You're going to see employees say, wow, I can sign up for a lower cost solution that actually makes me healthier and employers also promoting such models. Till now, the number of tools they have in their toolkit is pretty limited. The only thing that we could do is basically create high deductible plans, which continue to cost shift from the employer to the employee. But that's reached a natural ceiling. In fact, it's probably going to regress backwards because what's happened in, in high deductible plans is that the folks who can least afford to have a high deductible plan, meaning the folks who are on the lower end of the economic spectrum are much more likely to sign up for this. But when they have a problem, they can't pay their bills or they defer care, which is very unfortunate. So the solution can't be rationing of care by making things even more out of reach. The solution has to be that let's make things even more affordable. And the good thing is that primary care is the best solution we have for better healthcare outcomes. And it actually also happens to be the cheapest it's just never promoted because the health healthcare system is built around procedures and specialty care in hospitals, not on prevention of care. And we see this every single day that we're able to prevent significant healthcare costs by doing common sense primary care that just is missing in the marketplace. So my hope is that as companies like ours continue to scale, as people talk about the better outcomes and the better savings, that it will create its own environment. And look, we welcome even more competitors to the space because it continues to then push the agenda even further and causes ongoing disintermediation of the status quo. To your last point in your question, Eric, there are a lot of new entrants on the virtual side, on the digital side, on the telehealth side, on the soon, I'm sure we'll see a lot more self-directed care using AI. The challenge I see with that is there needs to be a point where all this comes together. Otherwise, it just creates even more chaos for the consumer, as well as likely more spend, which we've seen with telehealth. Telehealth is not shown to reduce any cost. In fact, it probably increases costs, and I don't know if it improves outcomes either. What you need is a consolidation of all these services under one umbrella, meaning Somebody needs to be point so that if you have diabetes and you're using a diabetes app, that's great. Maybe they're better than what's available on the market right now, but it ultimately has to connect to somebody who understands your issues with diabetes, your potential complications, your diabetes, and other comorbidities that you may have with diabetes. So 
what we're looking to create is a platform company that aggregates the best of breed digital solutions, combines them with physical, and from the consumer's perspective, the patient's perspective, there's a one-stop shop. Look, I think people have better things to do with their time than to sit all day and look at different apps and how to manage their care. There's trained professionals to help us do that, i.e. doctors, nurses, advanced practitioners, social workers. And I think what we are aspiring to create is an environment where it all aggregates into one spot and that the consumer or their patients can get all the healthcare they need coordinated through one location. I think by doing that, it's only natural that costs do come down and outcomes do improve. It's frankly not rocket science. It only appears to be rocket science because we've ignored it for the last 30 years. And I think that was evident in some of the stats that you all were referencing as it related to the total cost of care versus GDP and corporate taxes in this country. And hopefully, if nothing else, the economic learning platform is what gets us back to some common sense care delivery model. I'm convinced the direct primary care and other high-touch tech-enabled relationship-based primary care models are really the answer in moving to value. When you remove the primary care patient and the PCP from a fee-for-service transactional model, you're really opening a door to a more optimal delivery model of primary care. I'd like to learn a little bit more about the DPC financing and delivery model as an alternative to traditional fee-for-service-based primary care models by looking at the evidence supporting improved outcomes. There was a recent report released by Milliman that studied the DPC model and evaluated certain claims made about its effectiveness. And they compared utilization and cost outcomes for about 900 members who were enrolled in DPC to the same outcomes for about 1,100 members who were not enrolled in DPC over a two-year period. They found that the DPC option was associated with a 13% reduction in total healthcare utilization, a 40% reduction in ED visits, and a 20% reduction in hospital admissions. But they also found a non-statistically significant 1.3% increase in net employer costs after accounting for the DPC membership fee and deductible waiver. So even though members in the DPC option used less healthcare services, the employer's net costs for those members was actually a little higher than the PPO members due to the employer covering the DPC membership fee and reducing cost sharing under the DPC option. What would you make out of a study like this and how employers should design a DPC offering with clear objectives to provide higher quality care, improve patient and provider experience, but also lower the total cost of care? And can you speak to the ROI that we'll see from DPC in the long term from lower spend on chronic diseases because of the way that DPC focuses on preventive care, care coordination, and CCM? Yeah, no, I think it's a great point, Daniel, and I can't reference the specifics of that study, but I I understand the point you're making with it. A few things. One is the length of the engagement in DPC is what's going to drive your costs down over time. So frankly, in year one, you may actually see a, a total cost of care increase. But what happens in these models is that as you get to know the patient, as the patient gets to know the system, cost avoidance continues to grow. So I don't know the term of that study, but I would imagine that the numbers improve every year. The one takeaway from that would be that these should be viewed as five-year endeavors, seven-year endeavors, not one or two-year endeavors. The second thing I would say is it's incumbent upon both the DPC provider as well as the employer to make sure that maximum utilization of the DPC offering is happening. So it's not good enough to say, well, company XYZ, I've signed up with Everside Health, and 
I did my part and now you employee, you go figure it out and provider, you go figure it out. No, it really has to be so that these models only work if engagement is very strong. To make engagement be very strong, you have to make sure that these services are accessible. So for example, we see families as well, meaning employees and their families. It's not just where the employer is based, it's where also people live so that they can come to our clinic. You know, they come to us on average three times a year. They can come to our clinics. Well, they're not going to drive 30 miles to come to us because it's not like there's a shortage of doctors in this country. You know, there's plenty of doctors in that 30 mile commute. So you have to make sure that it's accessible to them. And at the same time, we have to do our part to make sure that we are showing our patients the value that they accrue by being healthier and how we get them there, which requires ongoing education, ongoing reach out either through technology or, or through basic things like phone calls. So a lot more push towards engagement. Having a safety valve in the benefit program from the employer's perspective can be challenging because if only you're a subsegment of your population goes to DPC, you're not going to see the full value, which goes, I think, to the last point that you were raising around chronic care. The highest return on investment in DPC is going to be seen by avoidance of issues so for example, let's use diabetes again, managing a diabetic, which is a huge cost burden, a societal cost burden to us, is, is not going to be seen immediately. What it, and in the short term, actually, you may see a higher cost because you're improving compliance, which may cost more on the drug cost, but it may be preventing renal disease. It may be preventing cardiac disease. It may be preventing an amputation. And the cost avoidance will be seen several years down the road. So I think that if, if we had to target where you could increase the ROI on studies such as the one you're referencing, it would be to significantly improve engagement, which is, again, a combination of both. It has to come from the employer as well as the provider to make sure that they're convincing patients that this is a better alternative. And then second, segmenting the population that the highest need population is getting what they need so that there's better health outcomes for them and lower cost outcomes. If you're completely healthy, DPC will not reduce your cost because you had no cost to begin with. But if you're in sort of using these uh, risk pyramids, if you're in the middle of that pyramid where you're either on the cusp of developing a chronic disease or you have a chronic disease, you can push those folks down into the healthy category, significant savings. But your biggest savings is at the top of the pyramid, the folks who are multi-chronics, who have multiple diseases, who are high utilizers of healthcare services to push them even in that middle category. That's where the ROI is. And I think if you look at as, a, as the movement continues to go forward, I think we're going to see a lot more value there than on the bottom because the bottom is a low cost, our low cost, fortunately, to begin with. You have to show that the total cost of care is being more than covered by the fees that we are charging. And we are very confident in our ability to do so. I mean, our numbers are not terribly different than some of the numbers you reference. And on average, for a dollar spent on us, we're very confident that you'll save about $1.45, $1.46, meaning about a 45% reduction on your total care cost, which gets better as time goes on. So I think that it goes back to the point we were talking about earlier, ongoing engagement, ongoing coordination, avoidance of disease is where the money is, as is where the better outcomes are. Well, Gaurav, I also wanted to get your take on how the patient experience is factored into a consumer-oriented model like direct primary care. The legacy model of fee-for-service primary care, it's clearly not a good consumer experience. I mean, patients feel 
disrespected by long wait times, short visits, poor communication. They, they don't get why doctors leave them hanging for days before answering simple, non-urgent questions. They wonder why physicians aren't willing to communicate with them via text or email. And with more and more healthcare dollars coming out of the patient's own pocket, they don't understand why it's so hard to figure out what something will cost. And millennials now have started this trend towards retail medicine that's causing great upheaval in traditional healthcare venues because convenience trumps loyalty. And doctors are perplexed by that loss of loyalty. On one hand, patients continue to describe their doctors as both wonderful people and excellent practitioners. But on the other hand, it's clear the relationship is fraying and there's a widening disconnect, it seems, between patients and doctors because of this diverging set of values and expectations and patients really thinking that customer service and greater convenience are especially important. And I know doctors are really struggling on this concept in the traditional healthcare environment. And Gaurav, I just wanted you to speak to maybe a little bit about how we should be thinking about about this patient-centered movement with regard to consumerism? And what would you tell our physician listeners out there on how they should realign their definitions for service and satisfaction and quality to how patients define those concepts so we can bridge the gap a little bit? And then, you know, maybe also if you could speak a little bit about for those PCPs out there that are listening, should they be worried about getting disrupted by some of these highly capitalized consumer-oriented retail models like CVS and Walgreens and, and Walmart? I mean, what should they be thinking about that? Yeah, it's a great question, Eric. It, it's interesting that we have, you know, the most expensive healthcare system in the world, but nobody seems to be happy with it. <laughs> the doctors are frustrated. The patients are frustrated. The folks who pay the bills are frustrated. So I think it's just a, it's a great reflection of just the dysfunctionality in the system. I think a lot of it stems from the fact that, look, I, I train as a primary care physician. I know a whole bunch of primary care physicians. They're super frustrated, as are most physicians in this country. And many of them are just frustrated by fee-for-service. I mean, let's go back to the panel size. I don't think any of us who went to med school thought that we would be spending eight minutes a patient or 12 minutes or whatever the number ends up being for a lot of busy primary care practitioners. That is not a meaningful relationship. In many cases, you are unable to do what you were trained to. And because of the time shortage, What's happened in this country is rather than people working at the top of their licenses, many people end up gravitating to the bottom of their license. They don't have time. You can't in 10 minutes manage a complex diabetic with who has CHF and is depressed. It's just not going to happen. And frankly, the, the reimbursement model will make you feel foolish if you spend an hour on that patient because you're losing money while you're doing it. So there's a lot of amazing people trapped in a very dysfunctional system. I'll answer the last part of your question first. I don't think primary care physicians have anything to be worried about in terms of disruption. Certain business entities in primary care may have to worry about it, but the primary care physician, there's always going to be a shortage of great doctors in this country, partially by design. So they will have plenty of opportunities. In fact, they may have better opportunities than practice medicine they wanted to practice. So it could be under a different banner than they're currently in, but it's not, they're going to have roles. I think that what many new companies have tapped into the vein on is convenience and putting the patient's needs first, which we expect in every aspect of our life, except as you mentioned in healthcare, where we've just, and for those of us who are older, are programmed to believe that I'm gonna have to waste, you know, I haven't been to a primary care doc in years for the same, till I joined Everside where I could just walk in and, you know, I don't have to wait. 
because of the same, it, it's a pain to get an appointment. When you get an appointment, it's a pain to wait there. There really is not enough time to explain the situation. And I think what's happening to your point is a lot of people are just shunting the system and using urgent care or using virtual care, which also have their own limitations. Look, I, at the moment, none of those modalities can give you, for some diseases, they're probably fine. Behavioral health would be a good example. But last I checked, you can't look into somebody's ear or throat virtually at the moment. <laughs> and a lot of doctor's visits require basic medical intervention such as that. Where the opportunity is, is to put the patient at the front of the care delivery model, which I think where DPC is in a good job, convenience. So in our case, for example, we will guarantee you'll get seen within 24 hours. You can walk into the clinic, we'll see you. We would like you to come in scheduled, but try doing that with a, you know, a regular primary care practice these days. And I think what happens then is we program patients that there's no point. If you have a, a mild medical condition, there's practically, by the time you get a visit, it's either going to self-resolve or it's going to get complicated. So you end up bypassing the system and going to urgent care and going to emergency rooms. The reason those businesses exist is because primary care folks don't have the capacity under the fee-for-service model to see patients. It's not like they're ignoring them. They just don't have the time and they're not structured to see real-time visits because most of the entire system has been built around the payment model and the convenience of the healthcare system, not the convenience of the patients. What DPC is doing is saying, hey, the patient's convenience matters a lot more. We will build our capabilities around that. We will coordinate that will coordinate their care. And the business model in this case supports that. You have to have panel sizes that are manageable. You have to have doctors who can, if needed for that diabetic with CHF and depression, can spend 90 minutes with them. You have to be able to spend some time looking at their social needs that may be a lot more important in their overall well-being than their clinical considerations. We, for example, have you know recently signed up with a company that helps provide patients with determination as well as access to other needs that they may have that around transportation or food or income assistance, which is probably a lot more meaningful to them in their overall well-being than what's happening in the confines of the clinic. So I say that all of this in, in, to highlight the fact that the patient's needs have to be put first and the business model built around that. Currently, the predominant care model is not that. It's the, the other way around. It starts with the moment you pick up the phone to make an appointment, to when you show up to park, to when you wait in the waiting room, and to when you get a prescription that's not covered by your drug plan, if you have one, to a lack of coordination that happens if you have a specialty visit. You are left to fend for yourself, and that's not how it should be. In, in models like DPC, the primary care physician responsibility, the provider's responsibility is to be your navigator, your at times therapist, and at times your chaperone through this very complicated milieu. Look, I'm a physician by training and I just deal with my own family members who are frankly, sometimes physicians themselves who are lost in the system. So imagine how complicated it is for a lay person to be told, hey, you have back pain, you need to get it evaluated. They don't even know what that means. Should I go to an orthopedic surgeon? Should I go to a neurosurgeon? Should I get an injection? Should I get a discectomy? There's really no support. And because of that, you get, and that's just one example, you get ongoing confusion, ongoing cost escalations, and ongoing bad outcomes because folks just are lost in the system. So what DPC does and what these more newer models are doing is 
putting the patient's needs front and center and doing the right thing based on that, not based on the payment modality or not based on the convenience of the system. Thanks, Gaurav. I appreciate this. A fantastic conversation today. So thank you. I'd love to wrap up by talking about this flashpoint that we've experienced. We're a year out from COVID. You've talked about how provider systems and healthcare systems have been in a downward spiral economically. And so they're starting to recover and we've seen this, but there's, there's also been a silver lining, so to speak, that COVID brought about. And you mentioned that it really highlighted the need for value-based care, that the fee-for-service model just didn't work where there were no procedures and no appointments. And so one of the things that came out of that part of that silver lining is the use of telemedicine and telehealth services. And so would love to hear your perspective on what you've seen there and, and where does the healthcare system go from here and how does that impact direct primary care and you know, physicians that are thinking about the benefits of direct primary care and, and the advantages that are now more accessible because of COVID with the telemedicine. I think, Daniel, it's a great question. And our parallel example I like to use is how we embraced things like Zoom and uh, virtual conferencing, other virtual conferencing software post-COVID. So these things were not new. They always existed. I'll confess myself that, you know, I would always get these invites, these virtual meetings. And I'm like, what's it? Like, why am I going to do that? Either I'll meet them in person or I'll talk to them on the telephone. I'm not getting in front of a computer and looking at a screen and looking at people, but that's just become second nature. And I think it's here to stay. In fact, I think it's going to significantly change how we interact in the workplace, how we travel for work, and also probably in our personal lives as well. I think similarly, healthcare, a lot of the capabilities around telemedicine have existed for years. They weren't invented due to COVID. They just got unleashed. You know, the genie was sort of out of the bottle because of, as you mentioned, because of necessity in COVID. And in many ways, I think it's a very favorable change, but it also has its downsides. For many of us in the sort of more on the provider side, for a while around this time last year in 2020, virtual visits were accounting for 70 to 80% of all visits. I think those numbers have significantly declined and they're probably running closer to 20, 30%, but that number is still probably at least 10 times what it was before, which was probably one to 2%. There's a lot of advantages to this. And I think also that this is here to stay. I don't know where it's going to gravitate towards, but I think the number is going to definitely continuing to move upwards. Frankly, uh, over time, maybe this becoming the, by this, I mean, virtual care being the main modality of care delivered over the next decade or two. Uh, so I think this is here to stay and accelerate. What hinders it is a few things. One is we've talked about, there's a lot of things that just require to see a physician or a provider of some sort, and we're not there yet. Something as simple as you think a child has an ear infection, you want to look in their ear as well, they're going to have to come into the office. Somebody has a complex surgical procedure and you want to do a follow-up, they're going to have to come into the office. That being said, many things don't fall in that category. And I think behavioral health is the perfect example. I know a lot of behavioral practitioners who are saying that they're actually never going back to the office. They find the virtual modality, meaning video, to be preferred by patients because of the fact that it's more convenient, that it's more anonymous, and it increases accessibility to their patients. I think what we're going to see is a convergence of a lot of physical clinic and digital offerings. So, you know, I used the word fidgetal a while ago. I think we're going to see more and more of that. 
What needs to happen, though, is some level of rationality in reimbursement around this. So what I mean by that is, if you look at digital solutions in general, typically as things get digitized, costs should come down. Healthcare, of course, as you all know, as experts, and this is, has broken every rule of economics, but I just think that for this to really continue to grow, there has to be some differential payment system, meaning a hospital system can't be charging the same fee for a virtual visit as they were getting paid for a physical visit. It just makes no sense because the cost of delivery should be significantly lower. Because in the absence of doing that, there's a risk that costs actually can go up dramatically because you can have a lot more digital visits than physical visits in a given day. The second thing is licensure. What one of the major advantages of virtual care delivery is that you can be sitting anywhere and be able to practice medicine comprehensively. And that that does a few things. A, it shifts the dynamic of supply and demand for physician services. It also enables a lot of folks who may not be practicing to practice. I personally know a lot of people who've who've returned to the workforce because they can virtually practice three hours a day versus having to go in every single day and go to the clinic. I'll use my dad as an example. He's not a physician, he's an engineer, but he was thinking of retiring. But because of COVID, he was given the opportunity to go part-time virtually. And now he plans on doing that for, you know, he's approaching 80 for, for as long as he can because of, you know, it just keeps him interested and engaged. So I think it unleashes a lot more of the workforce that's currently not participating. And apart from the fact that it's super convenient for patients for many things. Now, on, on, on the negative side, you also don't want, and I, I think I've used this comment before a few times, that digitizing a dysfunctional system just creates a digital dysfunctional system. So what we don't want to happen here is virtual care becoming the next iteration of urgent care, where people are bypassing the system, getting maybe even complex care delivered, but nobody knows what happened to them, meaning there is no point of coordination. So I think the right model is one where you have convergence of the physical care clinics with the digital care, which then continues to get supplemented with ongoing digital offerings. I mean, recently I was talking to a company that's providing orthopedics care virtually and was super impressive what they're doing. And I think over time, those things are going to continue to push the envelope on what can be done virtually. And as long as we can push the right outcomes and the right pricing, I think this will be the preferred modality of care for everyone very soon, with exceptions being around some certain things that do require seeing a physician in person. But I think the default will be virtual care supplemented by physical if and when needed, which has a lots of implications on the workforce needs, the real estate needs, and also physician preferences in terms of how they want to work and how they want to get paid. Legislation has to follow to make sure that there's some sanity here, not parochial medical licensure rules being enforced, which I think unfortunately is, is a high probability, even though they were eased during COVID. And second, rationality and pricing, which again, we've been hoping for that and have been disappointed in that. So let's see, it's a new era of care delivery that we never really anticipated, maybe even a year ago, that's just starting. And I think a lot of innovation is going to happen here. Well, I think that's a great way to think about this, Gaurav. I mean, the future is now, and we're thinking about innovation, digital transformation, patient-centered, tech-enabled, relationship-based 
primary care delivery. That's going to be a really big part of the future. I think you guys at Everside Health are doing a phenomenal job. And here at the Race to Value, we are optimistic. We can win this race and we can kill this tapeworm of the dysfunctional <laughs> healthcare system. So we thank you for joining us this week. I really enjoyed the conversation and I'm, I know our listeners are really going to love the interview as well. Well, thank you. And look, I applaud the efforts you all are doing to continue to push the message and being so passionate about it. I, I mean, I share in your optimism. I think we'll get there. Maybe that'll be one of the silver linings of COVID that it's really pushed the agenda on novel delivery models and novel payment models that we really accelerate by a decade on things that would have lagged. So I, I share in your enthusiasm. And I thank you both very much for having me. And it was a really enjoyable time. 